Now, continuing the theme of the new Jerusalem, we begun, just to remind you by way of summary, when we started this discussion, I took pains to put you back <clears throat> into the scriptures that tell us plainly that the new Jerusalem has come. When we read from the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> uh, which says that uh, you did not come to Mount Zion, or Mount, uh, Mount Zion, uh, or rather, you did not come to Mount um, uh, Horeb. You came to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a spiritual distinction <clears throat> from either Sinai or Horeb, where at, with both on which mountains God met Moses at different times. This is more like analogous to a Mount of Transfiguration where the thing that is from heaven that has come to the earth is viewed through the lenses of the spiritual and not through the lens of the natural. And it requires an upgrading and an updating of our minds. That is why it's so foolish for people to think that we don't need to grow up. There is a message of wisdom amongst the mature that is not available to people who insist on remaining children. When people say, all I know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, especially when I hear preachers say that, I want to say, well, please take a seat. What are you doing trying to instruct anybody? Because the next verse says, this is, this is analogous to milk, drinking milk, as opposed to strong meat for the mature. Anyone who admits that his or her state is that of milk, which is the doctrine associated with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, not that it's not true, indeed it is fundamentally true, but it's because it's among the simplest, earliest message that you, you will ever hear. But if that's all you've got after years of claiming to walk with God, you're also admitting that you're a child and children should never lead in the house of God. Whenever the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. So a message of wisdom amongst the mature is not, uh, it's not discretionary. It's what you must come to if you're going to understand the Scriptures. So this duality is very clear, very obvious, and abundantly important and absolutely necessary. So we began to look at Jerusalem as the body of Christ, not, I repeat, not as the historic city in Israel. When is the body of Christ going to grow up to the reality that Israel served its unique purpose? When, it, when Christ came out of it, 
That's what God entered into the Mosaic Covenant to perfect, to bring about. That's what God promised to Abraham. But after that, Israel would come in like all the other nations into the body of Christ without special privilege. Now they were given an advantage because they were given the law to shape, direct, and to maintain within the culture the knowledge of God and of the purposes of God to be fulfilled in Christ. So they gained an advantage, but what advantage did that ultimately confer on them? Well, they did not add faith to it. They did not add faith to it. So the birth of the Messiah amongst the Jews 2,000 years ago was met with stiff resistance to include his murder. Now, modern Jews ought not to be held accountable for the mistakes of their ancestors, but their ancestors made this mistake. They rejected Christ to the point of killing him. But salvation is available on the same terms to the modern Jew as it is to any Gentile. I'm speaking with this degree of clarity so that so much of this Christian mythology that holds ignorance in place as if it is somehow valuable uh, but replaces the truth, these are the things that we have to dispense with. And another such mythology is that the physical city of Jerusalem plays that pivotal place or role as the dwelling place of Jesus the Lord when He returns from heaven. No, that is not accurate. He dwells in His body. The new Jerusalem has already come. As we read, we did not come to uh, Mount Sinai, but to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which is described as the New Jerusalem. But that's not an isolated reference in Scripture, there are other references as well. When Paul in the book of Galatians compares present Jerusalem to the New Jerusalem, this is what he attributed as the spiritual significance of the one and the other, of the natural Jerusalem and the spiritual Jerusalem. For it is written, verse 22 of Galatians chapter 4, that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Now we know the story. This is a story of Hagar and Sarah. Hagar is an Egyptian slave who was the maidservant of Sarah. And here is the twist. Two sons Abraham had, Ishmael by the bondwoman, Isaac by the wife who is by marriage made free. She's the free woman. Not that she was ever a slave, but her position as a free woman is uncontrovertible 
because you'd, you'd never marry a slave. You had to set her free before you could marry her. And indeed, Abraham did not marry uh, Hagar. He already owned her. There's no obligation to marry her within that context. The same thing would be true if we're talking about a male slave. You don't have to negotiate with a male slave. You already own him. Now then, but he who was born of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. That's verse 23. But he of the free woman was by promise. In other words, God said to Abraham, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And that was when uh, Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah was ninety. So they would come, they would come from a free woman, a prom- ch- children of a promise. Which things, we are told in verse 24, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. Which covenant was from Mount Sinai? What is known and notable about the covenant from Sinai? Produced the Ten Commandments and an arrangement or covenant between God and Israel. So what are we to understand in terms of the free woman and the bondwoman and their respective offsprings? So there are two covenants, one from Sinai, which leads to bondage. Leads to bondage. Who then would be in bondage? The Jews. Because the covenant from Sinai is the law of Moses, given to them. Anyone who loves the covenant and the incidences of the covenant from Sinai love bondage. You know why? Because you could never keep the covenant from Sinai. You could never keep it. But if you receive benefits, that's why it's called a covenant. A covenant is bilateral. It means there are at least two parties to it. The covenant from, from Sinai was between God and the Jews, God and the children of Israel coming up out of Egypt. God promised to do all kinds of things for them and required only that they kept the law, which was not for the benefit of God but for their own benefit so that through them the consciousness of the birth of Christ, the promise of the birth of the Redeemer would be kept alive. But that in turn would benefit them in all manner of ways. They received an overwhelming benefit from the covenant from Sinai, but they neglected to keep what was required of them. Whenever you create, whenever you receive benefits 
but you did not meet your obligations, you become a debtor to the one who provided you the benefits and concerning whom you neglected to perform your duties. Now, God entered into a covenant with them and they entered into a covenant with God from Sinai and God performed the covenant, they did not. That made them a debtor, that made them as a nation debtors to the law. What happens when you receive benefits according to an agreement but do not perform the consistent non-performance accrues a balance that is impossible to pay off. And according to the old law of debtors, when you, whenever you receive benefits that you did not pay for, the one against whom you, you incurred this debt may seize you and everything that represents assets, so he sees you and your children and your family and your land if you have any or whatever assets, you become the assets to satisfy the unpaid debt. This is the manner in which Israel became slaves because when you, when you yourself become no longer identifiable as persons because you are now chattel, you are now objects that may be sold to satisfy a debt, then you transition from personhood to thing, to chattel, to asset. It's not the only way to make a slave of someone but that was the notion underwriting debtor's prison in the history of English jurisprudence and in the history of the jurisprudence of many countries, not just England. When you do not meet the financial obligation that attenuates from an agreement that benefited you, you then may be seized and held until the debt is paid. That's how the law made slaves from Sinai. So here is what is said. This is from Galatians again. Galatians chapter 3 speaks to it in this way. that Jerusalem, the context of course is that of Hagar and Sarah and one is, one is uh, the free woman, the other is analogous to uh, the Egyptian slave woman. Verse 24, these things are allegories for they are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai that produces children who are slaves, this is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers or corresponds to Jerusalem which now is. What does that mean? 
Sinai equates Jerusalem in the day of the writing of the book of Galatians because because it is in bondage with her children. So physical present Jerusalem even now attempting to keep the law but doing so imperfectly to say the nicest thing continues to create this debt by those who recognize, by Jews who recognize that they are still under the law. Now listen, no Gentile was ever under the law and you cannot put yourself under the law because God didn't make a covenant with you or your ancestors. The fact that these things are written in the Bible the, the fundamental assumption is the question of to whom were they written? Because they aren't just writings, they are what God actually entered into and gave benefits for to the Jews. This is the Old Covenant. No Gentile was part of that Old Covenant except perhaps the strangers who were within their gates. The whole premise of Christians picking up and keeping the law misses the mark at this juncture. You can do whatever you want to, but if God didn't enter into a covenant with you on this basis, then you're offering gratuitous action without the context of an obligation on the part of God. Look, if this were universally applicable, then God would deal with all the nations in this fashion. But it isn't universally applicable. And in fact, the covenant, this covenant from Sinai, ended with the superseding and superior covenant from Calvary where the sacrifice was offered of God Himself by which man might be reconciled to God. I wanted to show you that even in the present state, physical Jerusalem would never be the spiritual center of anything because it's analogous to that which produces slaves. It's Hagar, not Sarah, and it is not from above. It's not symbolic of the covenant from above. The covenant from above is the body of Christ. Here, this is Hagar, verse 25. Galatians 4, Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponds to the present Jerusalem which now is, meaning it's present, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem which is above is free 
And she is the mother of us all. So it's not natural Jerusalem nor the covenant from Sinai, one and the same thing that we are to look to. Verse 28, we are brethren as Isaac was are the children of promise. In short, the body of Christ has a relationship to God through the son of promise like Hagar, like Sarah's offspring and is not, does not produce children who are slaves. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Nevertheless, what does it say in the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. How much plainer can this be made? So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but free. That's how it ends. Now then, there is a Jerusalem that is from above. It is rooted in a covenant that God made with himself before the foundations of the earth to save a remnant of the earth for himself. So I wanted to establish uncontrovertibly here at the foundation in these two messages what we're looking at when we're looking at a new Jerusalem. New as compared to what? The old, the old, the physical city versus the spiritual city. And my point is that this spiritual city, point number one, uncontrovertibly, this spiritual city is the analogous reference to the body of Christ. When we leave this earth as members of the body, it's like going from the downstairs room to the upstairs room in a house. But it's the same house. Except in this analogy, the upstairs room is spiritual. But spiritual is the greater reality than natural. Because the natural is limited in what it may contain and reflect of the invisible God and of the eternal realm, it's limited to form. It's limited to and it's limited by form. The spiritual is more aptly able to receive, to entertain, to impart, to demonstrate the greater nature of God and a more complete version of the eternal. In short, the way the thing ought to look. A new epoch is introduced with the return of the Lord and central to this new epoch is the rule of Christ who is the head of the body, the church. 
So with his coming, the new Jerusalem comes. But because it's an epoch that spans a thousand years, for which time multiple things ought to, are designed to occur, it will, the heavens will descend into the earth in stages, not as a one-time thing. So just like Jesus came to earth the first time and the economy of heaven came with him when he came and he spoke of it and he acted out of it and demonstrated the reality of it upon the earth, so when he comes again, another iteration of the heavenly economy will come with him and he will act in that capacity, supported by that reality, and so will we. But as the millennium progresses and as the events slated to reach their finality during this time occurs, occur, greater and greater manifestations of the economy of this new order of things will be evidently manifested as well. That's a key understanding and one by and large that I have not read much about, if anything. But this is uncontrovertibly the way God has dealt in every epoch. The beginning of an age, when a new age begins, is the introduction of a new economy to support a new unveiling of what God has already known. The end of the age that precedes this new beginning is more like the age to come than the conclusion of the age that is passing away. That's biblical. These are, these are things that you can't argue about. Or you can if you, if, you, if you want, but it won't change the reality. For example, what did the prophets begin to speak about as they concluded the age of the Old Testament? they began to speak regularly about the coming of the Lord the first time. There was a convergence of the prophetic culminating in John who was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. His message, you generation of vipers who has warned you to flee of the wrath of God to come and so on. So as this age draws to a close, the age we're presently living in, the thing that will be preeminent is the return of the Lord. And all matters that point to that and that summarize this age will also point to the return of the Lord and that epoch will begin with the actual return of the Lord. It will continue for a thousand years 
in which era, in which epoch, in which age, everything that is to be finalized will be finalized in regards to why did the Lord create the heavens and the earth in the first place? God is about to reap at the end of the millennium, He's about to reap that which is useful to Him and to His purposes for the age that comes after the millennium. So the millennium will be a time of purifying, separating, judgments, perfection, glory, empowerment, a new, the, the new creation being fully brought forth as the corpus of Christ. So what I'm talking about now is what we are to expect in the new, in the new era to come and we want to focus, we have been focusing with particularity on a central piece of what is to occur, what is to come out of heaven, how it is to come out of heaven uh, in the form of the new Jerusalem. To summarize, we have dispensed with the idea that the dwelling place of God will somehow be connected to physical Jerusalem. No, that only produced, that was a symbol of the law and the bondage into which the Jews sold themselves by receiving benefits from God while being disobedient. When Christ came, He introduced a different concept of the city of peace, Jerusalem or Salim or Salem, the city of peace and the prince of peace. We who are under His rule enter a time of peace. We also enter a time of rest. The seventh day, Shabbat, means rest. The type and shadow was the seventh day that was to be kept holy in which a man would do, in which persons would do no manner, manner of work. The seventh thousand year of biblical emphases will usher in an age of peace and a time of rest, time where we do not live, where no one lives by the sweat of his brow because it's a time of being under the rule of the Prince of Peace. In short, the New Jerusalem is the experiential reality of the body of Christ under the headship of Christ entering its rest. All right, we'll pick up there when I come back. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye now.